The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. This past week, our family was going for a walk, and as we were walking, we neared a food line, and then we saw a fence, and we saw a sign. And on the sign, the sign read, No dumping, violators will be prosecuted. As we were walking, my daughter said to me, What does violator mean? And I said, It means someone who breaks the law. And she said, What does prosecute mean? And I said, We don't want to find out. And then I looked for my sons <laughs> to, to make sure we wouldn't find out. Uh, that sign, though, that bottom half of it, is intended to warn away a temptation to dump waste in a place reserved for a different purpose. It's also meant to encourage those who hopefully wouldn't give in to that temptation. Now, Jude is actually doing something rather similar today. In verse 3 and 4, he's told us, cherish the faith, contend for the faith. But today, he's going to give three examples of God's judgment. And those are intended, like the bottom half of that sign, to warn us, violators will be prosecuted. Now, there's something else that that simple sign actually is intended to communicate. It's intended to communicate that Food Lion has cordoned off a particular section for a particular purpose. That zone is walled for a reason. Um, To say it this way, if we all decided to break that law and we started to dump our garbage in their zone, then their employees would have to be pulled away from the thing they're actually intended to do to clean up the mess that we've made. And that means the prices for the food that were once affordable will go up. I'm simply illustrating this basic creative principle. Have you ever heard someone say, well, it's not harming anybody else. That is always a lie. God has created the world in such a way that everything reverberates far and wide. Therefore, one of the loving reasons that God judges sin is for the common good of human flourishing and also to reveal his good character. Now, I know that the text we're going to read today is heavy, but don't lose sight that God's judgment is for the common good of human flourishing and to reveal his good character. So in today's passage, Jude wants us to see why we need to remember examples. Look first in verse 4, and that will remind us why we need verses 5, 6, and 7. Verse 4, certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people, who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now, the title of today's sermon is God's Judgment. And we're going to look at three examples, one in verse 5, one in verse 6, and one in verse 7. They're all examples of God's judgment meant to protect the church and to prepare for God's judgment. So look in verse 5. Now, I want to remind you, and then we have in the ESV, although you once fully knew it, it's actually the same Greek word, hapax, that's in verse 3, the faith once for all delivered. So he's telling them there's a truth that you knew, but you're in danger of not living as if you know it. Imagine a mother who has young children, and the young children are about to play outside, and the mother says to them, don't forget, before you come in, take off your muddy shoes. 
And they say, mom, mom, we already know that. And she says, yes, but your friends are over today. So in all the excitement, don't forget what you know. Now in verse five, that's what Jude is telling the church. There are people who have crept in and that may cause you to lose sight of what you actually once knew. Don't forget what you know. And what you once knew is that God judges sin. They're in danger of forgetting that because verse four, people have crept in who are perverting God's grace into sensuality and denying our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. And so it isn't it easy to start thinking, well, hey, they're getting away with it. (laughs) Isn't easy to start thinking, well, these people say that they're Christians and they're denying what God says in his word, but it doesn't seem to be hurting them. Isn't it easy to quit contending for the faith? Let's face it, contending for the faith is tiresome. It's thankless. And it's by definition uncool. So to contend for the faith is challenging when others have crept in who are subverting it. That's why he says in verse 5, I need to remind you of what you once knew. What he has to remind them of is that God does judge sin. And so the first example is the rest of verse five. And here we read Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Let me first explain a grammatical note. You may have a translation that says Jesus, if you have the ESV, the NET, or the CSB, or your translation may say Lord, if you have the NASB, the NIV or the King James Version. Which is it? The answer is the grammar is more likely Jesus, but there is a textual variant. Here's why I want to bring that out to you today. Have you ever heard someone say, oh, the Bible's full of contradictions and errors? This is the level of difference. (laughs) So, So be encouraged. The differences are literally this slight. So whether it's Jesus or Lord, we know it's God at work As a triune God, Father working through the Son by the Spirit. That's surely what's happening here. So here's what God has done. Now God did something in the Old Testament that they need to remember. God, notice, saved a people out of the land of Egypt, but then destroyed those who did not believe. So notice there's a large group that God rescued, but some who are among that group don't actually believe in God. There's some people who are among the group, but not really in the group. And that judgment is actually meant to encourage Jude's readers, to encourage us, because didn't he just say in verse four, there are people who have crept in? There are always people who are among who are not really in. And so in verse five, he says, there's those people God saved out of Egypt, but then he actually had to destroy many of them because they were never really in. So what is it that they did that they didn't believe? 1 Corinthians 10 expands on this. Paul writes, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, passed through the sea, baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea, ate the same spiritual food, drank the same spiritual drink. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased and they were overthrown in the wilderness. I'll give you a quick summary of what's being referred to here. Um, The Old Testament God's people are in captivity in the nation of Egypt. God, in remarkable supernatural grace, performs 10 plagues and he delivers his people out of Egypt, showing that he is the living and true God. 
At the end, he moves them across the Red Sea. He parts the Red Sea and they cross on dry ground. When they get to the other side, Exodus 15, they sing. And then do you know what they do in Exodus 16, the very next chapter? They complain and say, let's get rid of Moses and go back to Egypt. We don't believe God's going to take care of us out here. So in Exodus 16 and 17, they say, what if God rescued us, but now what are we going to do? We have no way to survive. And then God sends daily bread in the form of manna. And then God has a rock that Moses strikes and out of it comes water. And at that point, you know what the Israelites do? When Moses goes up the mountain to get the Ten Commandments, the Israelites get all their jewelry and throw it in a fire. And then they make a golden calf and they say, hey, this golden calf got us out of Egypt. And they worship the golden calf. Now, they continue to disregard God's grace and his provision over and over and over again. Now, if at this point you're smirking and thinking, I would never do that. Think how easy it is to say, God, thank you for the fact that you sent your son, but I don't trust you today with my problem right now. This is exactly what the nation of Israel did. Hey, it's really neat that you parted the Red Sea and did 10 plagues, but we're going to die of starvation, right? So now that he's been taking care of them day after day after day, meeting all of their daily needs over and over and over again, he brings them to the cusp of the promised land. And they send in 12 spies. Do you remember this part? The 12 spies go and see the promised land and they bring back a report. Joshua and Caleb, two of the 10, two of the 12, say, we see the land, it's beautiful, it's glorious, it's everything God wants us to have. There are big people here, but God led us here and he'll lead us in. Now, the other 10 say, there are big people here and we can't do this. Surely God led us to this point, but he's not going to lead us in. We can't trust him. And the 10 win the day and they convince the majority. As my friend from Hickory, North Carolina likes to say it, none of us is as stupid as all of us. (laughs) So when the majority works together, they have a really bad plan. And the plan is to reject God's ability And at this point, this is Numbers chapter 23. This is the straw that breaks the camel's back. And God now says, look, Joshua and Caleb are going to live. Everybody else is going to wander for 40 years and they're going to die. You see, it's a big, big difference to believe in a God and to believe God. Here is a nation of Israel, the majority of whom are just people that were among. They were not really in. And so Jude uses them as the first example in verse 5 to say, hey, brothers and sisters, those who have crept in, don't follow their ways. God will judge, just like he did with those who rejected him in the wilderness. Now, here's a concern you might have at this point. Well, well, Josh, are you saying that Christians are are perfect, that we always do the right thing? No, I'm, I'm definitely not saying that. I'm saying what the Bible says. Salvation is not a momentary fleeting experience. It's an enduring reality. And the warnings that the Bible has are directional signs that Christians will follow. If you're driving from point A to point B and you see detour here, get back on the road here, and you're going to that point, you'll follow the signs. If you're not willing to go to that point, you won't follow the signs. By God's grace, Christians will heed these kinds of warnings. They will separate from those who are rejecting the truth. My favorite illustration of this was written in 1678 by John Bunyan. If you've never read The Pilgrim's Progress, you really should. It's the most impactful 
piece of English literature. I'm not being hyperbolic. It's the first English novel in history. In the novel, the main character, Christian, it's an allegory. It's very on the nose. So it's, it's exactly what their name is, is what they're like. So Christian goes to the wicked gate. His burden is taken off, and he knows he needs to follow the straight and narrow path. But if you know the Pilgrim's Progress, several characters go for a short distance. Obstinate, pliable, formality, hypocrisy, walk for a short distance. But saving faith is not an initial eager excitement that then flames out. Saving faith is the new birth that endures. And so here in Jude 5, he's saying, do not be like those who think they can pervert the grace of God and get away with it. That's example letter A. Now example letter B is verse 6. Verse 6, the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he is kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. What a complex verse, isn't it? Theologians have struggled much over what exactly is God telling us through Jude in verse 6, what's happening here? Most theologians believe he's referring back to Genesis 6. In Genesis 6, we read about beings that may be angelic that are interacting with humans. And there seems to be giants that come out of this disobedient union. And then the global flood happens in Genesis 6 where God wipes out the wickedness of humanity. It's also possible it's simply referring to demon possession. Demons who left their proper realm of purview and then went into others to oppress them. We don't know for sure. I think Genesis 6 makes the most sense in the, in the argument that Jude has. What we do know for sure is this. These angels who rejected God's authority have now been put under eternal chains in gloomy darkness. You see, the point that Jude wants us to catch is when we're tempted to reject God's authority, remember that even powerful angelic beings, God has made powerless by chaining them until the final judgment. When we're tempted to reject God's authority, remember that God's authority has an ever-reaching scope. The third example he gives is verse 7, and that's Sodom and Gomorrah. We should remember that God judges sin because, verse 5, God judged those who were among but not truly in the nation of Israel. Verse 6, because God judged the rebellious angels and has kept them in eternal chains. But now verse 7, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Before I explain verse 7, I want you to first notice the scope of God's judgment. God judges even those who fall within the people of Israel but were not truly believers. God judges even angelic beings. God judges Sodom and Gomorrah, though they be cities that were in the promised land but not really following the promise. This tells us some important things about God. It tells us that God's judgment is sovereign over everyone, everything, everywhere. God judges all. It also tells us something else important. It tells us that God's judgment is just and wise. God can discern the difference between those who are merely among and those who are truly in. In verse 5, God could tell the difference between the fake Israelites and the real ones. 
In verse 6, God could tell the difference between angels who had rejected him and angels who worship him. In verse 7, God can tell the difference between Lot and the rest of Sodom and Gomorrah. Do you know why that matters? Remember verse 4 describes those ungodly as people who crept in unnoticed. Do you know you may sneak into the church, you will not sneak past God. God's judgment is such that he misses no one. He knows who are his and he knows who's not. You know what that's really encouraging? Have you ever been watching the news and there's somebody in the name of Christ saying things that are false and you're like, they're going to get away with it. No, they're not. No, they're not. No one misrepresents God and gets away with it for eternity. No one creeps in and perverts the grace of God and then goes off into the sunset. Text actually says in verse 7, they undergo a punishment of eternal fire. You see, there's a difference between those who are among and those who are in. And verse 7 is about Sodom and Gomorrah, cities that should have been among the promised land, but cities that were living in great wickedness. Notice the word likewise in verse 7. These are people who likewise, going back to verse 4, pervert the grace of God in the sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. But how did they deny it specifically? We read here in verse 7 that they indulged, which is a term of illicit activity, and then it says they indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire. The Bible talks about the fact that God created male and female and created a natural desire between men and women that's fulfilled in marriage. But here the Greek is actually strange flesh, translated in English, unnatural desire, meaning now there's a desire that's unnatural, that is against the design that God made. God's design includes boundaries for human flourishing. Remember when I said earlier that food lion makes a fence because if we breach that boundary, it actually affects much more than food lion. God made a boundary for male and female, and if we break that boundary, it affects all humanity. Right now in our culture, in our sinfulness, we've decided that we can change our creator's design, which is a little bit like bringing a basketball to a baseball diamond and trying to play basketball. The designer made it a certain way. Nothing else can work on it that way. So the Lord's design is actually good and right. But what happens here in Sodom and Gomorrah is wicked and evil. Now, I think there are many reasons why it's not ideal for children to be in the morning worship. I think children's church is a really, really great thing. One of the reasons I think it's a great thing is because large portions of the Bible are written in a way that would be not appropriate for children. What I'm about to share from Genesis 19 probably falls into them. So be discerning in how you hear it. But I need you to understand what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah. In Genesis 19, two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and they went to stay in the middle of town square. Lot came up to them and said, it's not safe to stay in town square. Come stay in my house. We read in verse 4 of Genesis 19, before the angels could lay down, the men of city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, and listen to this phrase, all the men to the very last man. Every single man in Sodom came to this house, surrounding the house, and they called a lot and said, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. 
The Hebrew word yada, translated no, is a euphemism for sex. We use euphemisms. We say, I'm going to use the restroom, and we're grateful we don't go beyond that description. Here is a euphemism for sex. So all of the men, not a single man stayed home. Every single man in Sodom surrounds the house of, of, of Lot because they're there to have sex with the men that are there. Now here's what's very important to say. Lot said to them, I beg you, brothers, do not do so wickedly. These men have not come because they think there are angels here. They've come because they believe there are men here who they do not yet know. So they're surrounding the house, beating on the door, and then Lot says one of the most evil things recorded in all of the Bible. In Genesis 19, verse 8, Lot says this, Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. Now the men do not want the daughters because they have, remember, unnatural desire. They want the men. That's who they came for. And so they continue to beat on the door. And then they say this to Lot. We will deal worse with you than with them. And they pressed hard against Lot, drew near to break the door down, and the angels reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house and shut the door. And then the angels struck all these men from Sodom with blindness so that they were still groping at the door. And then the angels tell Lot this, the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Genesis 19 records the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah that we read here in verse 7. The Bible tells us here that Sodom and Gomorrah serve as an example of undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. As I was studying this week with lots of trembling and fear and asking God to help me communicate such a hard passage clearly, I was grieved to see how many commentators I read that try to argue that the sin in Sodom and Gomorrah was not homosexuality. Some of the commentators I read tried to argue that it was just simply a desire for people to be with angels, but the text is clear that they thought they were other men. They did not think that they were angels. The text actually is unmistakably clear, so the question is, why do we have such a hard time accepting what God has said? Here's what I think we need to address. The Bible is the word of God. It will challenge every culture in every time and in every place on things that that culture has deemed right that are wrong. Can you imagine an all-transcendent creator who would happen to agree with you on everything? Does that make sense? Of course, the all-transcendent creator, his ways are above our ways, and our life is full of him graciously showing where we are unrighteous so we can learn how he is righteous. The reality is that God is right and the rest of us are wrong. Now, in Matthew 19, I preached on gender, sexuality, and marriage. I don't know if YouTube has banned that sermon or not yet. If it hasn't, you can watch it. But Jesus says clearly in his own ministry in Matthew 25, 41, that he has prepared an eternal fire for the devil and his angels. Now, probably in verse 5, our American culture doesn't struggle. In verse 6, our American culture doesn't struggle. So why does our American culture reject verse 7? I think here's a couple things that are helpful. We now live in the rise of the psychological self. 
For thousands of years, sex was something you do. Only recently is sex someone you are. We also live now in the rise of the therapeutic self. We're told that our feelings are our true self. I think it's ironic. We live in a day that if you go to a yoga instructor or a physical therapist, they tell you to listen to your body. If you go to a psychiatrist, they tell you to listen to your feelings because your body is trapping you. (laughs) The reality is our feelings cannot be a true north for us. A third problem is we live in the rise of moral relativism. One of the common assumptions of our day is that any claim at truth is merely a thinly veiled attempt to coalesce power, except, of course, that claim of truth. Fourth, we live in the day of expressive individualism. We should express how we feel, and others must affirm it and affirm us in order for us to be our true selves. What we actually need to hear is verse 5. I need to remind you of what you once fully knew. Brothers and sisters, God judges sin. The book of Revelation 20 tells us that God throws any who are not in the book of life into the death and Hades. This is the second death. What we actually need to hear with compassion and grace is the truth that saves. And that means we must first hear that God judges. In July of 1741, Jonathan Edwards preached his sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Because of the title, many people wrongly assume he said it in a rancorous or angry way. But actually, our eyewitnesses have written in their journals that Edwards almost never even changed his monotone style. Most people wrote that he was very boring to listen to because his rhetoric was so flat. In that sermon, he said this, The manifold and continual experience of the world in all ages shows that every man is on the very brink of eternity and he does not know whether his next step will lead him into another world. Edwards continued, Unconverted men walk over the pit of hell on a rotten covering and there are innumerable places where the covering is so weak that it will not bear their weight. He continued in the sermon by saying this, Almost every natural man that hears of hell flatters himself thinking that he shall escape it. The reality that we must hear again is that God judges sin. And we must hear that so that then we can rejoice in this. But God will save any sinner. See, the good news of the gospel is this. God so loved the world. Do you now understand why that's shocking? That he would send his only son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have eternal life. God did not send his son to condemn the world, but so that the world through him might be saved. Verse 7 says that Sodom and Gomorrah serve as an example of undergoing punishment of eternal fire. But God sent Jesus so that you can escape that fire question you might ask then is how can God be just and then how can he declare righteous sinners like us we don't deserve to be declared righteous but this is the beauty of the gospel in Romans 3 there we read that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God but then we read that all can be justified by his grace as a gift through faith in the redemption provided in Christ Jesus 
See, though God righteously judges sin, God righteously will save any sinner on the basis of his sinless son, Jesus. So I wrote three applications for you on your bulletin. The first is appreciate God's judgment of evil. Appreciate God's judgment of evil. You know how in America, if you're a lawyer and you want to advance in your career, you need to be unjust. (laughs) So if you're the district attorney or you're the attorney general and you want to have a great career in politics, then there are certain people you look the other way when they break the law. Hey, I have good news for you. God is not seeking a promotion. God judges everybody justly. There's never a time that he looks the other way or like tries to win favor with a certain group. He is impartial and fair. He judges everyone according to Revelation 20, according to who we are in his sight. Appreciate that he's a just judge. But as you appreciate that, you have to admit, well, then that means he would judge me. And that's why number two, escape God's righteous judgment through salvation found in Jesus alone. See, the reason none of us can be saved is because we're all guilty. It's like we're all on death row together. We can't help each other out. The only person who could help us is someone who's totally innocent. And the only person who's totally innocent is God. And so God sends his own son because no one else could take our place innocently. And Jesus took it willingly. Now the text promises something beautiful that though we will fail as we sang earlier if our faith is in Jesus he will hold us fast would you look at how Jude ends look in verse 24 and 25 now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now, and forever. Amen. There's one person who can keep you blameless, and his name is Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And listen, no one comes to the Father except through him. So escape the judgment by coming to Jesus. And now third, Christian, Build yourself up in the most holy faith. When people creep in unnoticed and pervert the grace of God and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ, remember what you once knew. No one gets away with it. God will judge. And so keep your hope and faith in him. Trust him, obey him, love him, and look to Jesus when you stumble. But don't reject the truth of God and slide with culture. Culture always ebbs and flows, but the everlasting God has communicated the once for all faith that we now cherish and contend. Let's pray together this morning. Father, I thank you that the faith is not my faith. It is not somebody else's faith. It is the faith because it is the description that you have given in your word. And thus we are not standing on our own authority or our own opinions. We are not leaning on our own preferences or ideas. We have planted our feet on the solid rock of Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to love our brothers and sisters and love our neighbors well enough to say that all other ground is sinking sand. I surely understand that today's text 
talks about people that we love dearly. We have brothers, sons, cousins, aunts, uncles, all sorts of family members and loved ones that we fear believing verse six and seven because we think this describes them. But help us to remember Romans 3.23 describes all of us. We have all sinned and come infinitely short of the glory of God. The judgment of God deserves to fall on every single one of us. We all deserve to go to hell. So it's not a matter of singular people being highlighted. It's the reality of God being contrasted with the fallen human race. And Lord, in light of that contrast, give us the humility to admit that there is only one way to be saved. And so, Lord, help us to run to Jesus Christ and him alone. And, Lord, we are shocked and we are awed that you would so love a world of people like us, that you would send a son as perfect as Jesus, and that he would go to a cross as horrible as Calvary, and that he would rise so that we would not have to perish but have eternal life. So, Lord, I pray if someone needs to put their faith in him today, open their eyes. But Lord, as we take communion, help us to do so with increased reverence and joy because of what our Lord has done to save us. In his name we pray, amen. You've been listening to Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to ebcraleigh.com. That's ebcraleigh.com.